From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Welcome to the program, everybody, and thank you very much for tuning in. My name is Patrick White, and I am your designated driver tonight as Richard Serrett is off defending the universe. Just a quick programming note about next week. Richard Serrett will still be away, so taking control of the mothership will be none other than the executive director of the Zeland News Network, Victor Vigiani. And he'll be talking with Rosemary Ellen Guiley and some other great guests. And you can also follow Richard on his website at richardserrett.com. If you scroll down a little bit on his homepage, you'll notice that there is a featured book or the book or DVD of the week. And this week, the featured book is Viral Mythology, How the Truth of the Ancients Was Encoded and Passed Down Through Legend, Art, and Architecture. The book explores how ancient civilizations and cultures relied on various means of spreading information within the context of their stories. Marie D. Jones, thank you so very much for spending some time with us this evening. Thank you so much for having me on. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. So tonight, from cave paintings to YouTube videos, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) progression, huh? (laughs) Yeah, your book talks about ways that information has been shared throughout the ages. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Could you provide some examples of the earliest known forms of communication? Well, grunting was probably one of them (laughs) before we really developed a language. But we wanted to really take a look at how ideas and information have been communicated, passed down to, you know, generation to generation, how they've gone viral, not just. Um, in ancient times, but in primitive times as well. So we're going all the way back. And really the first way that we we were able to express ourselves was with art, with very crude art, such as rock and cave drawings, carvings and etchings, which really started out as being mostly lines that maybe uh, spoke about people were measuring things or they were marking down the number of days that were passing. It might have been a very crude form of a calendar. But eventually people started using paints that they made and painting images of animals that they hunted, painting images of themselves in warrior dress or of pregnant women uh, because they were absolutely fascinated by the whole process of birth. Um, and that that kind of progressed a little bit after that to rock art, to more sophisticated carvings and etchings as they developed their tools. And eventually it became the art of the ancients, which included paintings, mosaic art, pottery, and ceramics and statues and statuettes. So as we progressed, as we evolved, the way that we communicated visually evolved as well. And this is long before writing ever came into being. Other than that, what we were doing was verbally telling stories to each other. And we were we were passing information along orally because we didn't have a written system yet. So you've got the, the primitive art and you've got the oral tradition that has been passed down. And this is before writing came along. Yeah, and some of the examples of ancient uh, artwork, I mean, if you go to the Cave of Swimmers, 
in other places around the globe. I mean, some of the, the images that are depicted in this cave art is really quite interesting. Yeah, it runs the gamut from what was probably basic information for the artists at the time, you know, bison and deer and whatever animals or, or prey were present, whatever animals they happened to be hunting or maybe following, uh, in a sense, to keep track of where their food source was. And sometimes you had really uh, dramatic image imagery of rituals. I think around the time when we started to develop religious thought, religious tradition, you see a lot of cave art that looks very ritualistic. So again, as our ability to communicate information progressed, so too did the most crude art that we had at the time. Another interesting thing is there's a lot of unusual images of beings, you know, <laughs> for lack of a better word, that maybe not, maybe don't necessarily look human. Uh, giants, uh, helmeted figures, and those are the ones that are the most fascinating because they point to the possibility that primitive humans were interacting with other types of entities, even as we suggest today people are interacting with extraterrestrials or aliens or, or angels or demons or what have you. Sure, and there's also the possibility that some of these ancient artists were also under the influence of some oh, shamanistic-type yeah. drugs. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Everything, nature made itself available to primitive cultures, and they knew what to use in order to get high, and they had visions, just like people do today. Um, and so they may have been just translating onto the walls of caves or onto rocks, the shamanistic visions that they were having. So there may they may be fictional in a sense, but they still had a symbolic truth to them that the people at the time understood. A lot of the shamanic imagery was very archetypal, and it was very much appropriate and associated with the cultures at the time, how they viewed nature, what their cosmology was, what they thought their place was in nature, whom they felt they were communicating with in terms of getting spiritual guidance and wisdom. So even though they may be painting wild visions the way that even artists today paint gorgeous, wild, crazy paintings that uh, seem totally imaginative and fictional, there's still some truth in there. There's still some symbolism that needs to be taken note of. And typically, um, within these uh, groups of people, who, who would be the artists amongst these civilizations? Would it just be your average everyday individual or was it limited to say like the shaman or the elder of the group you want to know something it was probably the same way it is today and it was whoever could do the art well <laughs> because if you think about it you know who are the artists of today they're the people that have that skill that have that talent now they may very well have uh, only allowed certain members of their uh, communities or villages or what have you most of them were nomadic tribes to, to do the art. Maybe the shamans themselves did it because they're the ones that have the vision, so they could obviously best transform the vision inside their head onto the rock or the wall of the cave. But I also suspect that just as we are, that a lot of the behavior of people thousands of years ago is probably very similar to those of us today. The best artists did the best art. The best artists were the ones that were chosen to depict the images that they felt were important to this culture, this community. And that applies later to writing, too. You're obviously going to have your best storytellers telling the stories. You're obviously going to have your best writers getting the information down. 
you're going to have your most organized members of the community doing the recording and the sort of administrative record keeping. So it could very well have been that, that, you know, Joe and Mary were the two best artists in the tribe and they got to do the imagery, but you also had a medicine man who only he could transfer his vision in his head onto the canvas, quote-unquote, of a cave or a, a rock. And and because art and symbols are often limited to interpretation, you know, there was an eventual progression, I guess, to the written language and eventually then to the oral traditions. And within these oral traditions and myths, we see some, you know, recurring motifs and themes and symbols. Um, could you possibly discuss some of the more recognized archetypes from throughout the ages? Absolutely. And these are things that everybody sort of, Again, on a subconscious level, we all understand what the symbolism is. Um, you know, one of them is the world tree, the idea that at the that there is a tree that supports the heavens and the earth. A lot of cultures believe that there were three levels of reality, three levels of existence, heaven, hell, earth, heaven, earth, underworld. There were different ways to describe those three levels. Um, but whether you were, it was uh, Norse mythology or Hindu uh, the Maya, the world tree or tree of life, is a very prominent and popular symbol that many cultures shared. It's sort of, uh, to, to some people today, think it may have been describing a sort of wormhole, a way for us to connect with other realities. We didn't have the scientific understanding of something like the multiverse or the worm, wormholes or parallel universes, what have you. So we described it as a tree where you have the branches that are visible, you've got the roots underneath, and that connects different levels, different dimensions, different realities to those that understand how to travel the tree. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Time to pay some bills and appease our corporate masters. We are talking with Marie D. Jones about viral mythology. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these messages. Listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back, my good friends. We are talking with Marie D. Jones about viral mythology. My name is Patrick White, and I am filling in for Richard Serrett, who's off exploring inner earth. So, Marie, we were just. Inner <laughs> earth? Yeah, he's off doing some top secret stuff. Oh, okay, so you can't tell, huh? No, so I'm just being silly throughout the evening. Now, hey, good for you. Yeah, just before the break, you were you were mentioning the, the world tree. We were talking about recurring uh, archetypes yeah, and themes that have right. existed throughout the ages. There uh, are a lot of them, yeah. Probably, yeah. you know, the, the most important, probably the oldest, the most important, the most widely known is the snake or serpent. That's right, and that would go right back to the creation story. Absolutely. Garden of Eden, uh, Buddha ran into a serpent called uh, Mukalinda. And this also would include dragons, you know, dragon imagery, dragon symbolism. And a lot of people have come to associate, even though this is a very old, um, almost revered, maybe sort of a a fertility-oriented symbol, what happened is later as religious traditions developed, they sort of applied a very negative, almost satanic, 
to the poor little serpent that really I think in the beginning was more about exploring fertility, sexuality. But that is a common theme. And it's not just symbols that we see everywhere in different mythologies and different religious texts. It's also ideas and themes like um, the search for God, the search for the divine, or a belief in revenge, somebody setting out to get revenge or retribution against someone. The cycle of birth, death, and rebirth is a huge one. Uh, and that was very prominent when agriculture became sort of a, the nor- way, normal way of life. People started to really look at that whole cycle within the, the food that they were growing, the grains and the wheat that they were growing. Um, redemption, that's another good one. Fate and destiny. And, of course, the big one would be love, you know, the search for perfect eternal love. So those are ideas and themes that show up everywhere. And, and yes, there's also symbols, like we said, of the snake, the world tree. The green man is another real popular one. This sort of nature god that, again, represents fertility and growth. So and you have to say to yourself, you know, is everybody just thinking this stuff up all at once? Or is this coming from a natural progression from our own evolution that we would, as human beings, no matter where you live, no matter where you are in the world, you're going to be thinking about life and death and and rebirth. You're going to be thinking about controlling nature. You're going to be thinking about acquiring love or wisdom. And the hero's journey, another wonderful motif that you see in everything from the life of Christ and Moses and Buddha to today's stories of, of Luke Skywalker and Indiana Jones and you know, the, the guys from The Hobbit and <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I mean, these, are, these yeah. are just things that people contemplate. They're pressing issues. Exactly, exactly. So there may not be anything really mysterious about the fact that cultures that may have lived two, 3,000 miles away from each other that really had no means of communicating. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have Facebook. They couldn't email each other. Um, at best, word of mouth would spread ideas or if there was some form of travel on horseback or other animal, or a little bit of sea travel obviously might have taken place. But really, these ideas may have just appeared to to every culture just because of where we were at in our progression. And it makes sense, because, I mean, there's there's been times where I've had an idea that I thought was pretty original, Yeah. sort of sat <laughs> on it for a little while, and then yep. within a week of having the idea, I'm seeing it come to fruition absolutely everywhere. Yeah, and let me tell you, as a writer, that's one of the most frustrating things that writers face, and, and any artist, even musicians. You always hear about these lawsuits of somebody plagiarizing somebody, or some, well, you know, if it's outright word-for-word plagiarism, somebody stealing somebody else's movie script idea, or somebody, uh, the Rolling Stones having a song that sounds exactly the same as, what was it, the Symphony of Life? I don't know if you remember that lawsuit that went on. Uh, The Verve, that was the name of the band. Because they had uh, melodies that were very similar. Well, uh, you know, was somebody ripping somebody off, or is it just that that particular melody hit more than one person at a time? Um, You know, movie ideas, ideas for stories and novels and TV shows, I find it really impossible to believe that they only come to one person at a time. I think those ideas are floating out there in the ether, and people are just sort of tapping into them. And it, and it could be done collectively as well as individually. 
Sure. I mean, the ideas are static, and it's just mm. a matter of time before it ultimately finds its way into somebody's head. Exactly. And you hear a lot of artists, a lot of writers talk about how I don't, you know, this really isn't me writing this material. I'm just sort of channeling it. For, it's coming to me from somewhere else. I'm sort of like a vessel through which the story wants to be told or the song wants to be sung. And it sounds so woo-woo, but if you think about it, I know as a writer that maybe not so much with nonfiction because that's a lot of research, but when I'm writing fiction, there are times I really feel like I'm getting this from somewhere else. This is not coming from me. It's coming through me. And if you haven't experienced that before, it's hard to understand. But the same concept could have applied to people thousands of years ago who were getting the same ideas, the same symbols, the same imagery at the same time. If it's meant to happen, it's meant to happen. Yeah, yeah. Now, in in Chapter 4 in your book, you talk about the various types of storytelling. Would right. you would you mind explaining the differences between legends, parables, fairy tales, and ballads? Okay. Well, legends tend to be fantastical or fictional stories, yet they have the seed of truth. They have a, a core of truth at them. In other words, a legend, let's say Paul Bunyan or Johnny Appleseed, these were real people who really existed and did something. Johnny Appleseed, in the case of, of what he did, was to spread a particular type of Appleseed that became very successful, and he owned a lot of orchards. And he became known for being a very uh, adept grower of apples. Okay, big deal. Well, what happened is at the time, you've got people telling stories about this man because he would go from town to town and he would sing. Okay, that's a little eccentric. So you've got this guy who grows apples going from town to town, and obviously, as people start telling each other about it, they're going to add on their own little spin, their own little interpretation. Eventually, that that little piece of fact about who Johnny really was gets blown out of proportion, and it takes on a much bigger, you know, it becomes bigger than he actually was. It takes on a legendary status. It's almost like broken telephone. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Yeah, but it always starts out with something sort of innocuous and true, that there was a guy who liked to sing and grew apples, okay? But by the time you get to the 200th person, he's got magical powers, and he can do all kinds of supernatural things, and he wore a, a pan on his head, which a lot of people claim that he did. Um, so legends have the core of truth. But there's so much fiction piled on top of them that it really becomes difficult to figure out, okay, was this a person that really lived? Was this a historical event that actually took place, or was it totally fictional? Parables are stories that are told to impart a particular piece of wisdom or truth. They're very symbolic. Now, usually a parable is not about anybody who lived or anything that happened because the sole purpose of a parable is to teach you a lesson. There are a lot of parables told in the New Testament of the, of the Christian Bible. There are parables that take the form of fairy tales. A lot of fairy tales, which were just fantastical stories that had a certain theme or message they wanted to impart, that uh, take on the form of a parable. In other words, if you want somebody to get a piece of wisdom, sometimes the best thing to do is not tell them directly, but to tell a story about somebody who went through that and learned that lesson and 
look what happened to them. Uh, I think we humans don't like to get direct advice. We get a little bit offended at that. So parables were sort of indirect ways of giving advice and teaching people wisdom lessons. For sure. It's a great way to convey uh, an important message. And like you said, most people, due to the ego, they don't like being spoken down to because they've already got it all figured out. Right. I could say to you, hey, Patrick, come on, you you need to do this. And you're just going to say, Marie, come on, shut up. You know, what do you know? But if I say, oh, Patrick, listen, I'm going to tell you a story about a friend of mine. And there is no friend of mine, but I tell you a story that I know will offer to you a piece of advice that I think would help you for a particular situation you might be in. You're going to be a lot more open to that because you think it's just a story. Your subconscious is going to take the message from that that I want you to take. Um, Our conscious minds, like you said, ego gets in the way. We shut it down. We don't want to hear it. We think we know best. So really, even uh, fables, which used animals and magical figures, um, same thing with fables. They were intended to tell a real fun, fantastical, entertaining story, but it had a message that was snuck in there. That's a perfect way of encoding information into something that seems so trivial, like a story. Yeah, and once people typically figure out the underlying message you're trying to convey to them, you know, they embrace it a little bit more just because they figured it out. Yeah, and they did it on their own. They didn't have you in their face telling them. They took the story, they chewed on it in a sort of subconscious sense, and then they got it. The aha little light bulb came on. And that's a, a way that I think that most parents deal with their children You know, if you tell your child to do something directly, often they're just going to roll their eyes and not do it. But if there's a more imaginative way to tell them why doing what you want them to do would be a really good thing, eventually they're going to get it and go, oh, hey, I caught that. You know, they get it on a much deeper level than just the surface awareness. And the same really applies to ballads, folk tales, fairy tales. There's Ballads were really a way to tell stories about situations, historical events, people, love stories, love affairs, through song. And a lot of times it was meant to be entertaining, but a lot of times it was meant to be a way of encoding information in a very entertaining song so that the person hearing it really didn't know that they were getting something heavy-duty underneath the surface of that song. Sure, it would hit them on a subconscious level. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you had a lot of traveling minstrels, and, and they understood that people like to be entertained. But if you can entertain somebody and at the same time teach them something, you've got them. You know, rather than just somebody going from town to town lecturing people. I don't think that was going to work very well. But if you if you cover it up in a nice beautiful song and you're playing your instruments people are going to pay attention it's almost like christmas carolers you're 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 going to listen to them you know yeah everybody loves infotainment oh absolutely well i think the best way to convey important information may very well be in an entertaining fashion because then you've got people's attention and you engage them you're not talking down to them you're not you know toying with their ego or making them feel like they're being treated like children or you're being condescending, what have you. You're entertaining them. You're telling them a story 
But in that story, wow, there's an awful lot of truth and wisdom that you're getting sneaking into their subconscious. Yeah, personally, I like to sugarcoat my bleak realities with a heavy <laughs> dose of humor. And and two of my yep. favorite storytellers of all times are Bill Hicks and George oh, Carlin. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, George Carlin could say the most scathing truths, but but when it's a comedian or a humorist, they get away with it. And you kind of think about the things that comedians get away with saying that, you know, if you were to go up and it, it, even things that might sound racist or sexist or just totally offensive, when it's covered with humor, we listen because we laugh. We're being entertained. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, you know, we didn't write about comedians in here. And now you got me thinking that is one of the most, probably the most, um, effective ways of communicating information is to make somebody laugh. It is a great tactic indeed. Yes. Now, <laughs> um, we're, we're about to take a break shortly, but before we get to that point, I just wanted to um, bring about a term which uh, I, I saw quite regularly as I was reading the book, uh, which was archaeoenigmas. And, and these are mysterious, I mean, there's, there's tons of mysterious objects and structures around the world that have yet to be fully understood. Right. And, and, and that is how you term them, as archaeoenigmas. Yeah. And Larry and I have to be honest and say that we did not coin that term. We, we saw it here and there, and we thought, wow, that is really a cool word. And it totally sums up these objects, which are called oops and oops, objects out of place and objects out of time. So anything that's enigmatic that refers to uh, you know archaeology or digging up our history really falls under that banner. And there is no shortage of what we would call archaeoenigmas. No, they're being discovered every week, it seems. <laughs> it's every time I go online, somebody's saying, oh, you know, we discovered this ancient battery or spark plug or what appears to be a, a small a GPS system. Uh, the thing is, is that we're finding all of these things, light bulbs, electrical sources, that are so old and so ancient, they should not have existed at the time that they've been dated back to. Now, what you'll have is a lot of people say, well, we're just misdating them. No, that's not true. Let me jump in there, Marie. We'll, it's very interesting. We'll get back to this idea Absolutely. of enigmas once we get back from appeasing our corporate masters. Everybody, stay right there. Don't move a muscle. We'll be back after these messages. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740. Or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back, friends. We are talking with Marie D. Jones about viral mythology. I am Patrick White, filling in for Richard Serrett, who's currently neither here nor there. And we will get back to the subject. So, Marie, just before the break, we were discussing archaeoenigmas. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there are tons of mysterious objects, structures, megaliths uh, scattered around the world that have yet to be fully understood. 
Right. Now, my question is, why are there so many striking similarities amongst these objects, regardless as to where they are geographically situated? Right. And uh, pyramids would be a perfect example of that, how there are thousands of pyramids all over the world, same basic shape, whether it's um, you know the regular straight-sided pyramids or step pyramids. But there, when we talk about archaeoenigmas, what, we, what we're doing is challenging our understanding of our own history because a lot of these objects, people have found working batteries that are 2,000 years old. Battery wasn't invented until, I think, sometime in the 1800s. People have found light bulbs that are thousands of years old, uh, spark plugs, uh, you know, certain types of pottery that shouldn't have been there at that time that supposedly we thought came thousands of years later. So obviously all of these are objects that do not belong in the times or the places that they were discovered in. So we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean? Does it mean, one, that our actual history is much older than we imagined, that humans have been around longer, that humans have been uh, achieving things that we thought impossible thousands of years ago? So is our history the way that it's been written and presented to us wrong? The second theory or idea is that a lot of these things were not ours. They were given to us. They were given to us by possibly extraterrestrials. So you get that whole ancient alien, ancient astronaut theory where it is believed that over the course of human evolution, we have been visited by extraterrestrial civilizations that have helped us achieve leaps in science, medicine, technology, even art and architecture that we couldn't have achieved on our own, in our own natural progression, our own natural evolution. The third theory is that we're just dating these things wrong, that we're just wrong. They're not as old as as we think they are. We're miscalculating the dates. And I think that that's really sort of a lame theory because we have such sophisticated methods of dating objects now. So a lot of people really like to focus in on the second theory, the ancient alien or ancient astronaut theory, that, you know, where, where did this stuff come from? And why is there's not a lot of it? I mean, we haven't dug up every archaeological site that there is, but we don't find these things every day the way that we find pottery and, you know, household items that people use, things that we know sort of fit our idea of what our own history is. But every now and then one of these shows up, and it just really turns that idea on its head. And I, I think it's in Chapter 7 in your book where you talk about the paleo contact or, or what you would describe as ancient alien visitation. And, you know, for the UFO skeptics out there who absolutely refuse to believe, um, could you possibly offer up some other explanations for these you know, massive leaps and bounds in regards to uh, human sophistication? Absolutely. I mean, the idea that we have outsourced our knowledge is the most popular, I think, you know, in part because of the popularity of the History Channel show, the uh, Ancient Aliens and um, shows like that, that suggest that the only way that humans were able to make such leaps was with help from, you know, more advanced civilizations. That may not necessarily be true, because I think if you look at how we evolve today and how we sort of go through these 
snowballing leaps in technological advancement, I think we sell ourselves short as human beings. Every culture, every society has its geniuses, has its prodigies, its savants, its great thinkers, its imagineers, and people who are very futuristic in their thought. And it's possible that the Einsteins and Edisons and Teslas of old were coming up with these objects just as people are doing so today. It's also possible that we're talking about a collective, what Larry and I refer to as the grid, a collective of all realities, what you want to call it, the multiverse, parallel universes, alternate dimensions, where all information exists. Every idea that ever was, is now, or will be, is in this field or grid of information, as Jung called it, the collective unconscious. And is it possible that different groups, different cultures are tapping into this collective at the same time or maybe just a few individuals, and getting ideas that seem to be a little more advanced for their particular culture. Another one is, you know, another way that, let's say with the pyramids, that the design and structural commonalities could have spread really could be from word of mouth. Now, it would have taken a lot longer for an idea, a blueprint of sort, to spread You had people that were riding horses, riding donkeys. They were moving around a little bit. There was some sea travel. And I know John Ward, who wrote the prologue, is a big proponent of the more organic and natural ways that information was transmitted amongst ancient cultures. He he doesn't uh, lean towards the ancient alien theory. So you have people who do travel. They are nomads. They're taking their ideas with them. Now, to us, it looks like those advancements happened overnight. But back then, it really took a lot longer. And I think that it's just our interpretation of how quickly it happened that is wrong. All right. Well, we hear the bumper music percolating. We need to take a quick break. And when we come back, more viral mythology with Marie D. Jones. Stay tuned. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. AM 740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zuma Radio, AM 740. All right. Welcome back, everybody. This is Patrick White filling in for Richard Serrett, who is away on a top secret mission. We are here <laughs> with Marie. Tell us where, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and we're joined tonight by Marie D. Jones, and the topic is viral mythology. So, Marie, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about subversive symbols, secret messages occult architecture, you know, uh, (laughs) steganography, the act of writing in code or Mm -hmm. cipher. So my question, yeah, my question to you is, why would the ancients go to such lengths in order to conceal certain philosophies or ideologies into something so simple yet so complex like a symbol? Right. 
well, again, symbols are understood on a subconscious level, but they also could be used as codes for only those who are in the know. And, and the reason why information often throughout history had to be hidden or encoded or embedded in, in other things was really to keep it from the authorities at the time, whether they were political authorities or religious authorities such as the church that may have frowned on the spread of particular knowledge or information. And that's just a part of our history that, you know, it's kind of a shameful part of our history that so much wisdom and knowledge and even scientific knowledge may have been lost because it wasn't permitted to be publicly discussed because it went against the ideologies of the politics and the religious traditions of certain times in our history. So really, the people who wanted to get this information out, if they didn't die, if they weren't executed or killed in the Inquisitions or the Crusades or what have you, the only choice that they had was to either form secret societies, the sole purpose of which were to continue uh, passing throughout each generation certain rituals and knowledge and information uh, that was considered more occult or esoteric or hidden. Or they did it out in the open, like hidden in plain sight, just using symbols. Uh, A lot of people believe that part of the history of of the tarot card, the tarot card decks, includes hidden imagery that was meant to be hidden from the authorities at the time. And tarot decks were owned by everybody at one time because they were just like the playing card decks that, you know, every family had in the 60s and 70s. They were really created as an entertainment device, but people saw that there was a an opportunity to make decks of cards that had images and symbols that were occult and esoteric and kind of went under, flew under the radar of the authority figures at the time. It, it makes me think of, you know, the, the old Masonic architecture where they created and, and built specific structures in order to convey certain, um, ideologies yeah right. and and oh. you know for the layman who couldn't understand and, and spend the time researching this information they they felt as though just walking someone through the garden or or bringing them through the building would affect them on a, on a subconscious level and somehow heighten their uh, their awareness oh everything from naming certain columns after you know biblical figures that they felt were important to building their temples or their churches or their edifices according to the golden mean or very uh, sacred geometrical measurements because they knew that on a, a very subconscious level there was an aesthetic to that that we would we would get, we would understand the meaning of. You could just walk into one of these churches or temples and maybe, you know, just within your conscious awareness it might not really hit you that you are getting wisdom <laughs> through the actual way that the walls were erected the measurements of rooms how how big one room might be compared to another um, spiral staircases that are meant to represent the Fibonacci sequence that so they really understood that first of all the importance of number and measurement uh, sacred geometry the idea of as above so below copying cop- concepts of heavenly power and cosmological power, bringing it down to earth and including that in their structures and edifices. All of that stuff is a lost art. We don't do that anymore, except for these organizations, the Rosicrucians, the Masons, um, 
you know, other organizations that kind of pop up now and then that claim to want to pass down the information of the ages. And also, I mean, if you think about it, a lot of these symbols could be used for nefarious purposes also, I would imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the Masons, boy, they really get it for that. I mean, you have half the people believing that this is a wonderful sort of philanthropic organization that is really passing along metaphysical wisdom, and you've got half people thinking that they're satanic and, you know, engaged in all kinds of rituals and and involved in every aspect of politics and religion and the New World Order and the Illuminati and all that. So I, I think when something is hidden, a lot of times we we automatically apply a negative connotation to it because we don't understand it. It's shadowy. It's done in secret. But just because something is done in secret doesn't necessarily mean that it's evil or sinister, but it's just I think it's just human of us to want to apply that label to it. It's the... Fear of the unknown. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, so in your book, you've you've basically taken a pretty thorough, comprehensive look at how communication and the sharing of information has evolved throughout the ages. Could you perhaps speculate as to why what goes viral this day and age typically contributes to the devolution of man? (laughs) Well, gee, take a look around. (laughs) Here's the problem. Our primitive and ancient ancestors did not have the Internet. They did not have the absolute overwhelming amount of information to process and determine what is important and what isn't that we do today. Thanks to the Internet, thanks to other forms of communication that we have today because of technology, we are bombarded with ideas and information. And a lot of it may be total crap. It's up to us to sort of weed out what we feel is a a positive or beneficial influence in our lives or something that we can use on a practical level. So the amount of information that we are dealing with is so much greater than our ancestors, but the quality of a lot of that information is so much worse. Yeah, the we viral would... mytho- you know the viral mythology that we're creating today for our ancestors. They're going to have a hell of a time looking back and trying to figure out what was important to us. Yeah, we we went from sharing stories about morality and creation to filling our friends' inboxes with videos of dancing squirrels. Right, and look at this funny cat, and here's what I had for dinner. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Look, I love it. You know, I'm on Facebook all the time. It's fun. But there is that fine line where the overabundance of information is not necessarily a good thing because our brains can only handle so much. Our brains can only process and filter so much before we sort of go on overload. Uh, But again, we don't think about what we're leaving for future generations. And we certainly don't think about... Three, four thousand years from now, when somebody is digging up an excavation in our neighborhood, what they're going to find, what they're going to interpret that to mean, what they're going to think of us as a, a culture or a civilization based on what they dig up. It's pretty scary. It is, yeah. And you kind of think about it, and it kind of makes you feel like, well, gee, maybe I should be a little more aware about the. Do they talk about the carbon footprint? <laughs> We're leaving an information footprint that is, I think, 
even uh, as as important, if not more so, because a lot of what we're doing is just distracting ourselves from, like you said, things that were important to our ancestors. We've completely forgotten those things. We're so distracted by trivialities. We don't tell stories that are empowering to people on a symbolic or subconscious level. We do sometimes. There are good films, good TV series, good books out there. We we share information that is practical or meant to help people or educate them or give them wisdom and knowledge. But you got to dig that out from all the crap. That's true. And, and one has to wonder whether or not our access to this information and just... I mean, the information, it's, it's, it flows in torrents these days. Is it, is it something that was contrived to inundate us and to basically, you know, desensitize us to the information that we've got this access to? Or is this just sort of a natural progression? And if it's, if it's a natural progression, what's next? <laughs> I know. I hate to think that every single thing that is thrown at us is done for somebody's particular motivation or agenda, but I certainly agree with you that a lot of it is. I think that there is manipulation of information. But I will also say that as people, we are such curious, easily distracted creatures that we find our ways to manipulate ourselves with crappy information. We find ways to distract ourselves. We almost don't need those bigger, more sinister elements doing it for us. I almost think that, you know, we're... We're doing the job just fine for ourselves of not paying attention to what we really should. Absolutely. There's no shortage of material out there to leave your mouth breathing, that's for sure. Well, it's easy. It's easier to be distracted than it is to deal with your life. or to, you know, And even if you have a goal, it's easier to not go after the goal and just bury yourself in distractions. I think that's just human nature. For sure, and why put the why exert the energy when you can live vicariously through your exactly. your friends' feed on on exactly. your social networks? <laughs> right there, you go. Facebook. Let's blame it all on Facebook. Wonderful. Well, Marie, I would really like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for spending the last hour with us. It was an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. It was such an honor to talk to you. Yeah, and if you're ever up this way and find yourself passing through or in and around Toronto, definitely give us a shout, and maybe we can facilitate an event or a book signing oh, for you. Oh, awesome. I would love that. Thank yeah, you. Lots yeah. of fun. So thanks again, Marie D. Jones, author of Viral Mythology. We will be wrapping up shortly. I would like to thank everyone for tuning in tonight. My name is Patrick Joseph White co-owner and operator of Conspiracy Culture Bookstore, conspiracyculture.com. My beautiful wife, Kadina, is here with me. We're just getting ready to wrap up the night. We're in the last little bit of a home stretch. Uh, thanks for spending the evening with us. Uh, I would like to remind everybody to follow the show at richardserrett.com. You can follow Richard Serrett on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And if you got a few moments, head over to his homepage and sign up for his newsletter. We're trying to get 500 members. And if we can bolster that number uh, within the next few hours before Richard gets back, that would be a nice treat for him. So, that being said, have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. I'm Patrick White reminding you to think responsibly, and I'm out.